Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. Okay, I hope you've all had a fantastic week. This week we're returning back to normal interview mode. Um, I got a really cool interview today with an artist called Michael Rout, who came to my attention um, through Instagram, actually. Uh, Shindig magazine posted a video or a photo or something of, of uh, Michael's, uh, a single I think he had out at the time. And the image that he's got is very early 70s <laughs> kind of image, and it immediately caught my attention. Um, and I just, you know, when something catches your eye and you think, oh, go on and I'll check it out. And I, I had a listen to the music and it, it was incredible and suddenly became my sort of new favorite obsession um, for about a few weeks and, and just listened to everything he's got going on. And then I found out that he had a new album coming out. So I got in touch with him and, and asked if he would come on the show um, and discuss it. He's signed to Daptone Records and has a really cool story about how that all came about. and. Um, yeah, just really inspiring the way the sound of the records that he makes, um, the whole commitment to the sort of early 70s. I know this is a 60s recording podcast, but it's all influenced by the same sort of thing. Um, just really interesting. And I wanted to speak to him as much as uh, as much as anything, um, just for my own personal interest. And usually that's a sign that you guys might interest, be interested in it too. <laughs> so that's what the next couple of weeks are going to be. Um, so here we go. Part one of my interview with Michael Rout. start with sort of where you're currently at on your journey because you're so you're Canadian living in LA and you're on album am I right in thinking it's album number two I'm assuming that there might be more than that in in the background but there is more but yeah it is it's a it's confusing to know where the official thing starts I actually did my third record that was internationally released but one of them is kind of um taken off of Spotify at the moment so it's confusing. Discographies are are hard, but I mean, it's. I'd say it's like, and there was one album in Canada before that that was released only in Canada officially, and then there's tons of stuff before that that was released unofficially. So, anyways, yeah, uh, my second album with Wick with Wick and Daptone, though. And then, what? When did you move to the U.S. from Canada? When did you break away from from there and move over? Quite recently. Um, <clears throat> I guess in like 2015, I got my visa. Um, so I started touring down here a lot more. And that became kind of, you know, I work in the States more than I worked in Canada, but I was living in Toronto at the time. Then I moved to Montreal. And then I shortly thereafter started working with Daptone. And when I started working with Daptone, they, you know, New York and Montreal are slightly closer. Montreal is basically six hours from Toronto, where I was still had a lot of connections and was doing a lot of things. And then six hours from New York. So it was kind of, logical to be there so i lived there until um halfway through 2019 okay so i, I did my whole last record cycle with daptone living in montreal at the time my band my live band was based in toronto so i was always kind of doing tours picking the band up in toronto going down going to new york to record going around the states getting back to montreal the rest for a bit and then um at the end of the last record cycle uh my live band, I think, basically just decided that we weren't going to tour together any longer. And I was kind of just hanging out in Montreal and now had no reason really to be uh, 
so close to Toronto any longer. And ultimately, at that time, I ended up meeting my girlfriend, uh, Pearl Charles, who's a musician in LA. Uh, in LA. Um, and I ended up coming down and started hanging out with her down here. So it was in August of 2019 that I got rid of my apartment in Montreal, put a bunch of stuff in storage in Edmonton, and then started spending most of my time in LA. And then it really wasn't until uh, COVID hit that I really like settled down. Because before COVID, in March of 2020, it was like Pearl would be on tour and I'd go back to Edmonton to stay with my family and like use that time to like write and stuff. A lot of the new record was written there. Um, so yeah, anyways, this is a long rambling story, but basically <laughs> COVID happened and it can't like that like, locked me into either deciding to live in Canada or the States. And so then I decided to stay here with my girlfriend and um, eventually we got the place that I'm currently in the house that I'm in, in, in Landers, which is like close to Joshua tree. So okay. that's how I managed to make it down to the States, uh, more permanently. Canada seems, uh, obviously I know, you know, you're not there, but you just sort of start of your career with is there. And it there seems to speak to so many cool people from up there and how there seems to be so much great music coming from, coming from there. I don't know, you know, there's, uh, Andy Schauf, Bahamas, um, who else is, you know, the, uh, the brothers, uh, Landreth and Joey Landreth and all that kind of stuff. And there seems to be this massive amount of like soulful, I don't know, like it's Motowny soul sort of country stuff coming from up there. That seems that I just love it's, it's a whole rich, I don't know why it's happening, but it's this massively rich vein of, of great music coming from Canada. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is either, but Canada has always kind of had a good, uh, a good habit of exporting great artists. I mean, I like, I like living in LA now as a Canadian or, you know, between LA and Joshua tree kind of, you know, makes me think about Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and, and especially those two, because they're both Western Canadians <laughs> like me. Andy Schaff is too, actually. And we used to have the same manager. Because the other thing about Canadians is we all basically know each other too. I know almost every person that you mentioned there, or at least friends of friends, <laughs> but um, it's like, it's a very, sm- you know, it's a small population. It blows my mind. California has a larger population than all of Canada. And it's the wow. second biggest country in the world but it's but tiny population so when you start to consider the even smaller population of people who are making like indie music it becomes a very small community even like you know even when you don't think you know someone the other day i went and saw have you heard of casey and clayton before you know that band no i don't i think you'd probably like them a lot they're really cool um casey like three yeah really cool country duo and i just recently become friends with Casey, the female half of the duo. <laughs> and then I went to the show with my, with Pearl and because we'd just been hanging out with Casey. And then Clayton, the other guy, walked up and was like, hey, it's nice to see you again. And then we realized we played a show with his old band, the Deep Dark Woods, in like, like 10, 12 years ago or something. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize you, like one of the ba- people in that band had, was in this band, but I heard about this band for a long time, but I had no idea. But yeah, anyways, Canada was very extremely small in terms of population of people playing underground indie music so uh but it does crank out some some really great artists it's great i mean i'm enjoying it everything i it makes me laugh like when i was obviously i came across your stuff before i got in touch about doing this interview and and it made me laugh when i found out you're from canada it's just it's like oh for, just another another great artist coming out of canada what is happening <laughs> what is this and it seems to happen every time maybe it's just this one specific style of music that um, or this one kind of group of people making this kind of stuff that is, uh, I don't know, it's a scene, isn't it? <laughs> and it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is. I mean, I feel like 
Canada and America have a lot in common in terms like culturally, obviously. And like, I think that if you come from like the prairies in Canada, you're probably going to have a lot of like musical similarity in terms of just hair, like musical heritage to people who come from prairies in the States or if you come from the West coast, similar people on the West coast in the States. Um, but I, I don't know what it is that seems to be that we, I think it's possible that per capita we're cranking out more, more really cool musicians, at least to my taste, although there is tons of great stuff out of the States and more stuff coming out of the States, but the population is just so massively larger that yeah, yeah. it's harder to, it's hard for the Canadians to keep up. But uh, yeah, I don't know what it is about Canada. Maybe it's a slightly slower paced lifestyle. Um, I think in the States, it might be easier to make it because it kind of throws you into a fast paced way of living. And there's so many opportunities to do things, uh, in an outgoing sense that, which is really great for a career, but maybe, uh, in terms of like the gest gestation period as an artist in Canada, maybe is, a maybe is beneficial for things to be very slow paced in some ways. So stultifyingly boring that you might just spend a little bit more time writing a few extra songs because you have <laughs> literally nothing else to do. <laughs> Love it. I'm interested in, um, kind of what, what your background in, you know, as you were sort of coming into, you know, that, that period in sort of your teens when you start getting to know music. I mean, the, the influences that are on your records, I mean, we'll get into the, the sort of nitty gritty of records, but how did you, you know, what did you grow up listening to? And like, how did, how did you end up doing? Okay, I'm going to preface this a slightly different way. The way that you that you sort of your music and the, your the way that you present yourself on social media and and sort of marketed and also the sound of what you're doing is incredibly well honed and it must have been through like years of of discovery to get to that point and I just want to know what what musically was going on in those years of discovery. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I was really lucky. Like my family, I. I come from a family of musicians. So my dad and my uncle played in tons of bands in Edmonton, Alberta, where I'm from and around. I mean, they had their few, you know, they had their few times, their few shots in the States occasionally, although unlike myself, they always went back to Edmonton eventually. So they never really like stuck it out in those places, but they like, you know, uh, they had a bunch of interesting things happen in their life and they had lots of cool um, musical taste they were like, you know, they got brought down to Nashville by J.J. Kale and hooked up with his manager. Uh, they never really knew J.J. Kale. They just met him one time and he was like, you should know Audie Ashworth. So like they did stuff like that. My dad toured with Bo Diddley and, and um, John Lee Hooker um, wow. or toured with John Lee Hooker, backed up Bo Diddley a bunch of times locally when he was in Edmonton. Um, played with a bunch of blues people, was a kind of split between his blues uh, side where he was really just learning that sort of like uh, faithfully. And then I also had a singer songwriter side, made some recordings and stuff. Um, my mom also is a musician. She is, a, uh, was a great singer and, and was actually more schooled than anyone else in my family. So I learned more about harmony and stuff like that from her. Um, whereas I learned more about kind of being like a street hustling band leader, guitar <laughs> player from my dad. <laughs> but um, the, um, so, I mean, that was a big influence, just having so much music around me and, and so much uh, ability to learn in an informal way. I never really learned anything particularly formally, but I was not, I also wasn't like alternatively just sort of set out on my own without any instruction. Um, 
So that was cool. And then my dad eventually ended up getting a radio show in Alberta too, which was a R&B um, radio show. And then eventually got another show that was kind of just a mix of tons of different types of records and stuff like that. Um, and and at, by the time that he was on the radio, I was pretty close to getting into my punk phase where I was basically not really particularly interested in all of it, but it was around and seeping into my brain. Um, and then he also kind of helped influence my uh, musical progression because I think at some point he felt like I'd gotten too much into just listening to punk. And so he started trying to like make me burn CDs at the time back in the CDR days, like in high school of just different mm -hmm. things that he thought would appeal to me, but wouldn't be so narrowly focused. Um, and that kind of kicked off. I remember he made me like a Beatles mix CD of just all the stuff that he thought was like stuff that I wouldn't know from all the eras, like from the very beginning to the most tripped out psychedelic crazy stuff, but just things that I might not know. So I think it had like, uh, it's funny to think that me not knowing this stuff at one point in time, because it's all pretty obvious now and like really not the deepest stuff that I've dug into in my life. But at the time, everything from like their version of baby it's you to tomorrow never knows to like, I mean, I, I don't think he put this on the CD because I think he assumed I would know it, but I remember even listening to like one of their greatest hits compilations on headphones around that age and listening to like Michelle and hearing that just the vocals, how much the vocals did and how they all sounded together and being like, couldn't, I mean, at that time I was just like, man, I couldn't, I think I was already playing in bands, but I was like, could not imagine getting my band to sing these parts or how you even do that which then started a whole thing with my mom of like listening to the harmonies and having her sing each part so I could sing it along and finally start to pick each part apart which at first just sounded like a giant block of like inconceivable you know beauty but also like intimidatingly impossible to understand um so I don't know I guess that all like sort of led to here to some degree and I guess like ultimately I started playing in bands um, and when I was like 15 or so and just went through a progression, I've gone through phases of playing rootsier, bluesier stuff. I've gone through phases of playing really sixties pop stuff. Um, and I think ultimately at this point in time, a lot of my influence comes from seventies, but not really so much in the sense of trying to, uh, recreate anything. I think one of the things I like about the seventies is maybe it's like one of the first, um, sort of like. I don't know if postmodern is the right term because I never went to like art school or something, but it feels like almost postmodern in the sense of like, uh, or, or something like that, that it's like, it's one of the first eras where I feel people started to really mix and match all like on already uh, established like memes or tropes or whatever, or just like templates. Like, you know, yeah. I, I can't even remember which song it is, but I recently heard like in the last couple of years, I stumbled upon this one song on one of Stevie Wonder's seventies albums. That's got like, um, it's got James Jamerson on upright, Stevie on keys, and then it's got uh, what's his name again? Was it? Was do you remember the name of the pedal steel guitar player who played with uh, oh. Graham Parsons and no. Sneaky Pete? There we go. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. got those three as a as like a trio, and it just got, and I think maybe there's like synthesizer in there too. It's just like one of those things where I was just like, oh yeah, this is like people at this era were already just starting to be like, well, what if we just had like the best R&B bass player with like the best country pedal steel player and then Stevie Wonder will just play piano and sing on it. It's like stuff where you're just like, that was, so I, I, I find the seventies inspiring now for uh, being just so freewheeling and loose in terms of the mixing and matching of, of influences to a degree that I think in sometimes in the modern era, people kind of 
gotten away from. But anyways, that, that was a, sorry, I kind of got off topic from your original question, but that's kind of, I think maybe sort of brings us up to date. I think so. I mean, it sort of leads nicely onto one of the major things that I want to talk about is how your, your sort of, a pretty, well, the, the sound of your records is, um, to me, I mean, I'm just hearing, I mean, the, obviously reading through the press release for this, like the, the references on the press release are exactly exactly what i was hearing like i'm laughing as i as i read the press release having listened to the record before i read it it was like okay mccartney stevie wonder beach boys hall of notes 10 cc and i'm like okay yeah absolutely i can hear all those sounds there and but yeah it sounds modern like there's something modern about it it's like the to me you know i'm a drummer and the drum sound is the drum sound is just sounds like it was recorded straight to vinyl (laughs) and then then you've got loads of Loads of sort of like sound references, like the clav. Um, there's a few sort of McCartney solo record sound references going on, but then there's so much modern sound happening at the same time. You've mar- managed to sort of marry that up in a really interesting way. Um, how, Thank you. W- yeah. What's your? I mean, just on that subject. How? I mean, presumably you. You. It's not something that you've necessarily shot for directly, but it's just sort of happened but you must you know you'll have aimed for it to a degree so how what's your kind of thought process around the sound of of the records overall you know in a, in a broad yeah way? it's a good question i feel like i don't um i don't want to make retro records necessarily but i do like what i like and i mean i feel like for a while i've made recordings of people who like weren't willing or weren't able and earlier on in my life to go all the way to making it sound like a 70s drum sound or like a 60s drum sound or something you know um when i went to daptone obviously that became not a problem (laughs) any longer the ability to actually dial in sounds that sound pretty close to the old days although it also makes you realize how much every producer engineer musician and just individual in the world, whether they're playing music or not, kind of has their own style and their own set, like vibe, but whether or not they're putting it into, you know, whether or not they're musicians, um, whether or not they're artists at all, I think everybody kind of has their own vibe. And so ultimately it starts to become a little bit less like, is it sixties? Is it seventies? Is it, is it this or is it that, you know, or is it like, is it the Kinks or is it the Beatles? Or you're like, it's not because it's not, it isn't Shell Tommy recording the Kinks, you know, it's somebody else recording somebody else. And ultimately you're never going to, you're never going to get away from that. It's like the individuality of each person, like having worked with Daptone so much, I don't really feel like when I listen to Daptone now, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's really that. Like, you know, uh, sound of that started in the two thousands in Brooklyn that like continues on to this day. It doesn't make me think like, Oh, it sounds just like Stax vault or something like that. You know, it's like, it doesn't, it's its own thing. Um, so I think that's like ultimately the philosophy that I've come to is just that like, I like what I like. I don't want to make it like a history lesson, you know, and the songs come spot like somewhat, you know, spontaneously and uniquely to me in the same way that I think they probably came to the people that I'm inspired by and who we look back to from the sixties and seventies. And then the productions, I think it's just about trying to make it sound good. And some people, you know, will hear the way that we record the drums or the way that we record everything and, and be like, Oh, well, you're like so slavishly, interested in trying to make it sound old i'm like no i just like the way this sounds i've made records that had more modern drum sounds on them but i always kind of or like more modern every you know whatever 
and you know, just big beefier, I don't know, whatever it is that's happening, but like not quite the way that I would like it to sound, doesn't quite have the same subtlety or just doesn't sit in the same, doesn't play the same role in the mix. And I always, in those situations, would always end up finding myself finishing the record and being kind of like, even if other people were really liking it, and even if I was kind of proud of it in a way, I'd be like, I just don't know if like this has the same groove vibe thing that I was like initially really going for. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing quest and it's an ongoing experimentation in terms of like, who knows what I'll do next time? Who knows what I'll do three records down the line? Who knows what elements of modern, uh, and every era of recorded music, I might start bleeding into it at different times, but it's really certainly not about, um, it's certainly not about being like, I'm going to make a record that sounds like 1973 in <laughs> like, you know, in California or whatever. Like, I don't like, uh. I'm not, I don't think about it that way. And it's not so much like a dress up game for me. So it's more like, I mean, also it also applies to uh, the way that me and a lot of our friends all dress too. I feel like I'm definitely, I'm also not like, we do have a lot of elements of like 70s style and stuff in the way we dress, but I'm also not like, oh man, you can't wear that thing. That's like from, that's from like 84 or whatever. Like, I'm just like, I just think that like, I feel comfortable in these clothes. I feel comfortable in this sound it's this is the way that i like to do it i'm willing to experiment but it's not you know it's not a retro thing but i love that i mean as you're talking then i'm thinking it's it's just such a hard balance to make i mean that tone the sound of that sound is uh it's exactly what you just described it sounds like that label and mm -hmm. it's such a it's such an interesting balance because you start using modern you know sort of modern um mid sounds you know guitars and rhythm section sounds and suddenly the drums struggle to keep up because those, you know, the sounds that were coming in, you know, the late 60s, 70s, they don't have that same punch that, that modern kit sounds on modern records do. So finding that balance of how do you make a really present um, forward drum sound that can hold its own with, with a, a pop record that's in a modern production style and also... Uh, also feel like it's got a bit of a retro vibe to it but still cuts it and i, I just love that and it just suddenly when you start to, to fiddle with you know fiddle with the drum sound to make it old school sounding and then you're like okay well that's not quite balancing in the mix so maybe we'll have to just dial down this over here and we've got to and it's it's a big juggling act because it's it's dominoes isn't it you knock one thing down and it affects everything else and, and totally yeah. and it's interesting too like i mean like when i first heard about Daptone, I was extremely young and it was basically through Amy Winehouse. And then I got onto Sharon Jones and stuff um, way before I had any personal connection to them. I was just, I think I was actually playing street hockey in Edmonton as like, at like 15 <laughs> or something. And someone put on the Amy Winehouse thing. And I was like, Whoa. And at that time I was already into like my dad's R and B radio show and stuff. And I was already getting more and more into the idea of older recording sounds. And at that time from my, you know, granted very like, sheltered to a degree although i had the exposure from my family stuff i certainly was not hanging out in brooklyn while that whole scene was like coming together and i was completely cut off from what was happening in the larger world to a large degree but um i do it from my perspective at that time i was like whoa people can make recordings that sound like that stuff because it seemed like almost like at that time in the 90s and the 2000s or like earlier 2000s it seemed to me like it was basically a lost art like i was like nobody makes recordings that sound like this um 
And so I think that for a while it got, it was really popular to have a lot of projects that were extremely like in their box of sounding like that thing, because it was really, and it, to me as a listener, it was extremely exciting and refreshing to be like, holy crap, you can do this. I didn't think you could do this. Um, and so, but now at the, like now that I'm, it's been about 17 years or something since that time. And I feel like, um, it kind of opens up, you know, it's just kind of opened up this really cool era that I think the best of what's happening nowadays is an approach to things where it's all available to you. I mean, to the degree that you can find people who have the gear you want to use and, or you can afford it, that is a, a major, major hurdle truly. But at the same time, if you can, if you can get it, you can basically use anything that was like any piece of gear that was available to, you know, the bands in the sixties and the seventies and all of the stuff that we have in, you know, a modern studio and ultimately in theory. And I think oftentimes in practice, you can make the best records possible, really that are up until now, I'm sure it'll get even better in the future, but it's like, it, it there is still a lot of room for like the amount of improvement and, and uh, flexibility that modern technology and modern recording has allowed us. But we also aren't stuck in having to be like, Oh, we only have to use modern stuff, but we're also not stuck in being like, well, we, have to use, we only have to use old stuff like we have so much ability to like mix and match and make cool things which i think should make this the best era to make music and should probably make it some of the best recorded music um to date hopefully when you look back on it at some point in time i'm not speaking about myself specifically but <laughs> in general everybody should have that ability to do that right now um which i think should you know should ultimately be more liberating than even living in the 60s or 70s as if well, although I know that everyone like us has, has fantasized about that, but I think right now is probably better. I think it's, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think one of the interesting sort of uh, challenges is how, just how much, I, it's a theme that's constantly running through every conversation I have on this podcast is how, um, you know, we've got so much available to us, so much ability to tweak and to record in ways that make the, sort of post-production more flexible and so there's just so much available to us that we almost have to put restrictions on ourselves to a degree so getting that that marriage of of modern and old school that we're sort of talking about is it's tough because the temptation is to just do it the the most flexible and easy route and go oh well i'll just you know i'll, I'll just make that sound with a plug-in as opposed to committing to it through a you know, through a, a tape machine or whatever, however it is that you're getting that that vibe. But um, yeah, it's it's a difficult struggle to to get, and I think we're in a really interesting place. And I think you're right that we're combining all of these different sounds and options that are available to us, and we're learning how to deal with all of these options and and how to how to make the best sounding recordings without um, sort of how, how am I trying to explain it? You know, you know, just basically like there's so much available to us, we're going to have to stop going, okay, well, let's just record everything clean and we'll make it all sound a particular way later. Um, and we're I think that leading into like, I think that leading into like authenticity and, and real, real performances, real um, sounds. I mean, I, I, I oftentimes find that just in my own um, humble home recording experiments. I've been trying to build a better studio out here and I'm recording a few different artists and sort of messing around with, um, sorry, did I go away? I managed to, uh, am I back? Did I leave? I'm not sure. I had a phone call try to knock me out, but I don't even know if that affects anything here. Um, anyways, 
uh, in my humble experiments as a, as a solo producer, where in my own records, I oftentimes work with much more accomplished producers than myself, but, um, in my hands-on experiments with it, um, I, um, have found that I think real stuff, like a real, like, I mean, I'm not trying to speak degradingly towards digital because it definitely has a ton of positive uses and I do use a lot of digital stuff but when I can run something through like a preamp that has like transformers or transistors or just weird wiring in it or something that's like making it sound more just real to my ear or if I can use spring reverb instead of a plugin although some plugins do sound really good in certain situations the shootout I'm like you know the plugin actually sounds really good for this application but having more and more of that stuff that's like actually tra like traveling through real physical uh electronics and and there's acoustic sounds and all these things i think that is is something that people could stand to lean more into obviously as a culture on the whole this point in time the majority of the music that's on the pop charts or whatever is not um is not embracing that very much at all except for occasionally when you know to some degree when like mark ronson does something with bruno mars with wayne who engineers at Daftone engineering it but um it you know so ultimately i don't know i do think it is cool to lean into like and it's cool to embrace like the imperfections of physical of physical recording technology and the imperfections of real people playing instruments um and then i think when you struggle to try to make it as perfect as possible with the inherent imperfection in it that's really exciting and cool sounding to me whereas when you make a record that's just perfect because you have the ability to make it perfect i'm like just i don't know for me i'm kind of like just like that's just is completely uninteresting to me i'm like there's nothing about this that was exciting there was no like oh are they going to be able to pull it off it's like of course you can you're going to record it all perfectly and then you're going to quantize it and then you're going to put everything on top of it then you're going to tune everything there's like no there's no excitement it's like watching uh it's like watching some sort of you know I'm going to say hockey just because it's my sport of choice, but it's like, <laughs> it's like watching a hockey game and being like, if it was all somehow completely manufactured and like artificially enhanced and you're just like, well, there's no more excitement of being like, wow, they can really do that. That's so exciting. It's just like, oh no, they can't. It's just the total spent. It's like watching a modern Hollywood movie with all the special effects. There's no excitement <laughs> of like watching us like from watching a seventies movie and being like that dude actually probably just jumped a car over a river. They got a stunt driver to do that compared to like watching like a modern Transformers movie or something where it's like the stunts are, you know, the actual visuals that you're seeing are like insane stunts, like every 10 seconds or every two seconds, but it doesn't like make you feel anything. Cause you're just like, I mean, whatever, it's all just computer stuff that looks cool enough, I guess, but I'm not like feeling the danger <laughs> or the excitement of this at all. I love that feeling the danger. I that's a, that's gotta be the, that can be, maybe be my new sort of subtitle for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> i'll give you um i'll give you some sort of monetary recompense for it <laughs> perfect i'm happy to help out um well how did the relationship with uh with that tone come about and how kind of exciting given you know how much you know we all we all fell in love with that amy winehouse record and like how much um sort of it feels like a, a sort of a perfect marriage of you know you you feel like you fit there perfectly so you know how did that all come about and and how was that um it came about initially i toured i was touring opening for king gizzard and the lizard wizard in about 2015 or 16 and um at the time they were recorded two of their records 10 two of their bigger breakout records i can't remember which ones they were 
but with at Daptone with Wayne Gordon, who eventually started working with me. Um, and so there, the last show on that tour was in New York and we played at the music hall of Williamsburg and they were scheduled to start recording another session in at Daptone the next day. So they just invited us down and we ended up going down at the tail end of the day. We like met Wayne very briefly and listened to what they tracked that day and said hi to everybody. And then everybody was, we didn't last very long. Everybody was really tired that we just gotten off the road and then done a full studio day. So we like said, hi, it was quite a trip at the time to be there. Uh, I was just kind of like, whoa, cool. We're at Daptone. I've heard about this place many times and thought about it a lot and referenced it a lot. And now we're here. Um, and then I didn't really think much about it for a while. Um, I was was at the time planning on trying to self-record my next record and thinking about trying to do it with me playing all the instruments, uh, which I'd done a little bit of with some releases around that time. Um, eventually though, I kind of cracked on that idea and was driving myself crazy with the pressure of playing everything and doing everything myself. And I remembered Daptone and Wayne and I reached out to them and asked if I could just book some studio time to record there. And my plan was just to go there for like a week and record as much as I could with, uh, me and a drummer and a bass player from their crew that I would hire on. And basically after the first week, um, Wayne and I ended up talking and he ended up suggesting that I should sign and we worked out a deal and I basically ended up getting my money back <laughs> and then got signed to the deal, which was kind of great. I uh, definitely didn't see that one coming at all, but it was a nice, uh, it was a nice break, uh, after really being stressed about the amount of money I was spending actually. <laughs> and so that was like a very, surprising and nice um a turn of events and um and that was basically how it started and then we finished that record and then i started this record which this record has been kind of interesting though because it's kind of gone through many different uh hands and, and passed through many different studios so it might be one of the first daptone records in a long time that wasn't mixed through one of the daptone engineers oh. uh we ended up having it mixed by James Valentine, who's an Austin-based engineer who is awesome. Um, and I, I actually, it's kind of cool. It's kind of created a little bit of variety, but um, that's getting away from your question, though. Getting that's to work right. with Daphne, so the first place was great and, and, and still is. And it's been a really cool experience. It kind of allowed me to actually step into, you know, to some degree, the ability to make records that are pretty similar to the things that I was, that I'm listening to, or at least the ability to pick and choose where we do that. Um, and compared to with other engineers in the past, I didn't feel like that was really on the table. It wasn't like, Oh, well, can we make it sound like, a, yeah. like, like this record that I was doing there? That kind of like, ultimately, although very few people will say it outright at the end of the day, you're kind of like, I think the answer is no, we can't, we can't figure it out. <laughs> so we're just going to keep it the way it's sounding. So anyways, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been really cool and it's been, you know, an honor and a cool sort of almost decade of my life where I've kind of collaborated with that crew and uh, I'm excited to see where that goes in the future at this point in time. Uh, I mean, just as we seen. Well, I, I, I hope that there's more because, uh, I mean, the new record's great. I, we, we'll get just to, before we get onto that, there's one, one thing that like, while I've, you know, as a, as a sort of an artist who's, you know, you, you, you're doing quite well in terms of, you know, musically well. It's it's just really made me, you know, the history that I've got with the the project. I was, uh, you know, kind of lots of people do projects and then it they collapse and that's how they get their little start in the uh, in the music scene. And that's kind of my my sort story, too. And, mm -hmm. you know, we got our break through a very similar turn of events that you, you've just basically said, you know, the 
booked some studio time that was way out of our depth in terms of money. And that led to management and a booking agent and da da da. And the story goes. And I think just for, you know, I get a lot of emails from, or even artists that I work with drum wise who kind of go, you know, I'll help. What, you know, what advice would you give me to get, to get, you know, the classic thing is like in, in the music scene. You're like, well, okay, well, <laughs> there's lots to unpack in that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the amount of stories I, I hear where people take a risk and that risk pays off in one way or another. And, you know, you had a plan anyway, and the plan didn't involve Daptone. And then you took a risk. Through to the end. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You took a risk. And, you know, had you not signed with them, you'd have made a record you know, in a week and done some cool stuff and, and probably had some great music at the, at the end of it and not thought anything, not thought twice about it. But the, you know, there's a, so many artists out there who I think are scared to take that little first leap. And I think it's interesting hearing that from you. And it was, it's kind of, you know, it would have been easy for me to just glaze over it and start talking about the album, but that's a really pivotable, piv pivotal thing that's happened and a decision that you've made that's led you to the point that you're currently at. And it's a, it's a risk that a lot of people are scared. I think maybe they don't admit it to themselves, but they're quite scared to take. It's a scary move. <laughs> But, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that um, not that I'm entirely composed and uh, like, you know, the pillar of strength in the midst of it while I'm doing these things. Oftentimes I'm a nervous wreck, but for whatever reason, I've, that's kind of been the, my MO for my whole adult life, basically. I mean, moving from Edmonton to Toronto was a big leap that I didn't really know what I was going to do moving to Montreal in the midst of that while I was then started to tour the States. And then the Daptone thing was kind of a maybe the scariest most amount of money just on the table at the same time. But uh, I often say like people, other people like, like to gamble, like play poker and stuff. I don't really, but I just feel like I kind of get that kick, whatever kick, although it's not always enjoyable out of uh, just my general lifestyle that I've generally chosen. I mostly just keep, you know, doubling down on, on my bets kind of throughout life. <laughs> so it, you know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, I think in the long term, it always does work out in my experience, but sometimes you do take, you know, momentary harsh losses through your aggressive gambling. But um, <laughs> luckily the depth on one was a, was a, was a successful venture. <laughs> So there we have it, part one of my interview with Michael Rout. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Do go and check him out on Spotify and Bandcamp and all the usual places that you go and find new music. Um, he's on Instagram as well. Um, I've put a link to the That 60s Recording podcast playlist on Spotify, and I've added a couple of my favorite tracks to that playlist. Um, so go and check that out um, if that's your first port of call to go and find out about him. Um, yeah. So there we go. So we'll be back with the second half next week. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with me, and actually thank you to everybody that's got in contact with me. Um, I'll explain uh, probably at the end of next episode a little bit more about um, sort of what's going on at the moment. Everything's just hectically busy and um, running a podcast that goes out every week um, is becoming tight. So I, I feel like a break is imminent. Um, but I'll explain a little bit more about that at the end of the next episode. Um, so anyway, but thank you to everybody that's got in touch over the last couple of weeks. It seems to be that um, doing <laughs> not sending an email out on a Tuesday and, and doing something slightly different um, kind of uh, 
I don't know. It makes everybody. It, it sort of breaks the the routine of of the way things are. Um, so thanks to everybody who's got in touch over the last couple of weeks. Um, and I will yeah speak to you more about um the future of things at the end of the next episode. Um, so yeah, you can get in contact with me. Uh, my Instagram is at all you need is drums. My email address is joe at all you need is drums dot com. Um, my website is all you need is drums dot com, and you can find loads of free drums on there. My isolated drums list that I spoke about on last week's episode and all that stuff. And um, that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Adam Mallet for the intro. Uh, Blooming heck, I'm getting everything wrong. Adam Mallet, who designs the artwork for this podcast, to Joe Kane, who did the intro and outro music, and to Rory Hancock, who edits and uploads the podcast. Um, appreciate all of them, and I appreciate you guys for listening. Um, and I will speak to you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.